Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Christmas is almost upon us, and for me personally, Christmas time is truly the most wonderful and magical time of the year. So I want to extend both Christmas and holiday greetings to all of our listeners. I hope you have a meaningful celebration with your family and your friends. Now, we've got a good show for you today. In case you missed it, In our newsletter, which you can always subscribe to for free at connorsforum.org, just takes a a second, just takes one click, the Connors Forum has added a second podcast. In addition to this podcast, Utterly Moderate, you can also find our new show, Outrage Overload, at connorsforum.org or anywhere you listen to podcasts, so Apple, Spotify, any of those major platforms. So the host of Outrage Overload, David Beckmeyer, is joining us today to talk about all the media commentators and politicians who make up the outrage industry, an industry which thrives by gaining attention through stoking their audience's fear, anger, and indignation. As stated in the podcast description, quote, the baseline of constant and chronic outrage, a persistent background level, weighs on us, creating constant stress and anxiety individually and on society as a whole, end quote. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Again, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of you. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful celebration, and um, I'm looking forward to this conversation coming up next. Silent night, holy night, all is gone. All is bright Round yon virgin Mother and child Holy infant So tender and David Beckmeyer, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, our pleasure. And and you have this new podcast, which we're all really excited about, Outrage Overload, which recently joined the Connors Forum. Uh, so welcome aboard, by the way. Um, so tell us about the premise of your show. What what should get people excited? I listened on the treadmill the other day and I thought it was excellent. So uh, what what's the premise of your show? Yeah, I mean, the fundamental premise is, you know, kind of literally the title, we've kind of reached our peak on outrage and and kind of lowering the temperature. What can we do? You know, what, what, how do we get here and where can we go uh, to tr- maybe try to lower the temperature and and, and get past this and, and improve that landscape of outrage? Yeah, and you're focusing a lot on, I assume, on the producers of this stuff, right? The outrage industry, I think you called it outrage porn. So, uh, what is the outrage industry specifically? What are you specifically referring to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I talk about the outrage porn, as you noted, and and that was a term. I, I, everybody is crediting Tim Creeder from the New York Times. It's sort of the first one using that. So I'll do the same thing. But then I'm using a bit of a broader um, definition of that than he used. He, he was kind of restricting it to sort of social media. And it's this kind of media where it's just trying to get you fired up, you know, with righteous indignation and, you know, trying to get us excited and, and agitated all the time. And, um, you know, and, and, and in this context, outrage is kind of a conceptual term for kind of a general blanket of emotional responses like anger, fear, and moral indignation kind of being the, the primary ones. 
And so, you know, a, an example in the political realm is like the classic campaign messaging, right? I mean, you get, if you're on the left, you're seeing things like Donald Trump did this thing, send us $10, right? Um, if you're on the right, you're probably seeing something like there's a caravan of immigrants coming for your job, send $10. And, you know, and this is, this is not a new thing, but, um, you know, it's just kind of escalation and it's, it's this driving narrative is this black and white, good guys, bad guys kind of idea. And, and, and then, of course, obviously, you've seen this kind of thing on, you know, social media, you see it in campaigns, you see it in, um, on in cable TV news. These are probably the main, if you talk about the outreach industry, um, that's probably some of the biggest purveyors of it are, are sort of campaigns and cable news and, of course, social media because, you know, as we – and I talk about a lot of the research about this that, you know, basically if you kind of throw in these outrage and these moral – uh, words and 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 you make it a sort of moral indignation thing that that the the algorithms love that they promote that because it keeps people on their platforms so then that's the kind of third big kind of outrage purveyor but i mean you could even say it even goes beyond those main ones to things like reality tv and stuff is kind of using some of this same same thing and you know so that's kind of the outrage part of it and then the porn part of it is kind of because we actually like it right we seem to like it you know peter ditto said uh you know we seem to get a perverse joy out of seeing the other side do things that infuriate us quote end quote and um you know and to me it seems to just justify our sense of moral superiority and kind of validate our hate and resentment on the other side so we 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 actually seek this stuff out you know and like it because we get a short-term little <laughs> blast of of neuro neurotransmitter and but you know but the long-term effects are negative so so that's kind of what it is it's kind of this outrage porn and then it's all these purveyors of it yeah i do this uh exercise in my class and i i spend a lot of time in my classes even classes that aren't really <clears throat> all that much aligned with this topic i still spend time talking about news literacy and uh, a big part of the exercise is really just telling them hey here are a bunch of really trustworthy outlets that have been rigorously, um, you know, examined, and they 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 tend to have limited bias. They tend to have, um, you know, really good hard news. When they make mistakes, they correct them. You know, those sorts of things. But we also spend time on um, identifying like what is it about these articles and about these stories that would make them fail our rubric. And so this exercise, I have them go to, um, I just pick a couple sites that I think are really terrible sites, right? <laughs> left and right. And so the typical stereotypical one I do is Huffington Post and um, Breitbart, right? And, uh, and I have them go there. And the first thing I have them do before I have them analyze the headlines and the stories and on this site, what's top of mind for you and what's, what's the, the leading story of the day here versus this one. Before I do any of that, I just have them compare that to like, say, a Reuters or the Associated Press and just describe like, like what sorts of feelings do you get? And it's exactly what you're talking about, Dave, right? So if you're so used and as a person like myself or you who are used to studying this kind of stuff, even we find ourselves having the same reaction. The Associated Press and Reuters are boring. <laughs> right. Exactly. It takes work to make it through, right? Because they're complicated subjects. They're not priming you to be mad or or angry or fearful, right? That someone's coming to attack you. And inevitably, now I'm not, I'm not doing a false equivalence, right? That Breitbart and Huffington Post are equal, but they're doing similar things. Right. Big blaring headlines, all caps, right? They're, 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 somebody's threatening you. Somebody's hurting your group, right? It's all the stuff you talked about. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, yeah, it is a bit of a challenge because like you say, even NPR, you know, sometimes the, the right will accuse NPR of being being very left leaning. But I mean, many times if people are on the left, they read an NPR story and they don't like it because it's not sort of attacking the right enough. Right. Uh, the NPR was too soft on them or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. You run into this problem. And you know, and and that's a big piece of it. Like everybody's asking for sort of a prescription, you know, kind of, you know, some kind of prescriptive advice on how to deal with this. And, but they kind of don't like the answer sometimes, right? Because a lot of times it's kind of looking inwardly. It's, it's, you know, being, as you, as you know, I mean, Connor's forum has some great, you know, news literacy stuff. And, you know, I'm going to be sending a lot of people to that stuff because why should I rewrite that? It's already there. So, you know, I was going to add a lot of stuff to my website, but why should I? A lot of it's already there. But, 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 but I'm going to add some more of that because it's the most commonly asked question. But yeah, a lot of people don't like the answer, right? Because it's kind of like, how do you get good grades in school? You do your homework and you listen to the professor. <laughs> Nobody likes that answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, again, if you're used to, it's just the way things are now. Like I, I, you know, if I go five minutes without looking at my phone, 
I, I start to feel like I'm, I'm having like withdrawal, right? And like I'm tapping my foot. And so we con- constantly need that, that dopamine hit or whatever it is that's happening. Right. And, um, I, I, I tell my students all the time when, like you say, prescriptive advice, I say, you know, there's, there's really no easy answer in terms of regulating media. If you, if you take it down the road so far, you can see how your side would not like it or how the other side would not like it when somebody else was in power. So yeah, I, I think the answer is less news. You don't need to watch news all the time. You don't need to check it all day long. Right. So, you know, maybe check it once a day, have a handful of good sources and make sure they aren't the ones that David's talking about on his podcast. <laughs> well, and, and I think even if you're going to check those other sources, I, I think if you can, I, and, I, and, I, and I've, I, with a lot of the people that I've talked to about this, it's, it's you know, it doesn't scale well because you're talking to one person at a time. But, but if you can kind of go at these things with a, with a lens of, you know, that they're sending me this outrage porn. And, and particularly when you're, I, I ask people to look, particularly when it's your sort of own side, you know, the people that are supposedly on your side doing it. And, and I think that's when we need to be as critical as it's easy to, you know, be critical of the other side, but, but try to be critical of the people that are supposedly on your side. And I think it does help to kind of go in before you even start like, okay, my wife and I have a little game now, like we go, what's the outrage of the day, or let's turn on some outrage. And I think just kind of activating that you're in, you're looking at it through that lens helps, you know, some that you're, you're not just going to sit there and let it all come in. You're going to actually be thinking about that a little bit and trying to put it in perspective. So, so I think that helps, but you know, on this regulatory thing, I will say I'm starting to do uh, I've discovered some things along that front that uh, I don't know if you've seen the work of, of C. Edwin Baker, I believe, and he passed away now, but, but he was doing work 20 something years ago on this. And he has a, uh, you know, and it's pretty arcane and it's pretty down in the weeds, but he has some, some real interesting things on that, that believes that, but that he really believes we can do some things uh, in theory. I mean, that would still not violate the constitution and work because I mean, obviously you know, we can't maybe, you know, people talk about, oh, Germany does this or, or whatever. And we can't do all those things necessarily because we have a really, you know, First Amendment, a really powerful First Amendment. And we don't want to violate, like you said, we don't want to violate that at whichever side you're on, right? Because anybody can weaponize that. But he, he's got some really good ideas. So I'm, I'm pursuing that a bit and trying to find some more researchers that have spent time with that because, you know, it's there. But then we run into the problem is, is there any appetite for, for regulation, you know, politically? But. It's, it's something to think about because there are, I think there are some things. He, he talks about a lot of things that we, we could do. And, you know, uh, Jeffrey um, Berry wrote the book called Outrage Industry, uh, and that was published about 2014. And the research was prior years to that. So it didn't talk a lot about social media. It was l- really looking at things like cable TV news and um and at that time, kind of Rush Limbaugh kind of talk radio and, and some of that history. And, you know, and, and they offer some of the same ideas that there, there you know, potentially are regulatory things you could do uh, that would still be constitutionally sort of st- still fit. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've all heard about the backfire effect, you know, that uh, if you're constantly surrounded by <clears throat> people who you trust who are giving you uh, one message and then you get one message from somebody else who you don't trust, which is a you know, disconfirming evidence, you're not likely to incorporate that, right? So you just sort of double down and, and dismiss it. But I, I do think what you just said is really, really important because, you know, I teach classes on like race in America and, you know, a variety of social problems. And my students will ask me, well, you've said that these problems have already existed, have always existed, and that they're better now than they were in the 1950s. However bad racism is today, it's not what it was in the 1950s. And so, why are you so concerned at the moment? And I really point to what you just said, which is in the 90s, we all have a family, a family member who's been radicalized recently, right, by media. In the 90s, what I've noticed about people who I know who've been radicalized, yeah, they had those ideas. Deep down, I know they had them, right? They didn't say them publicly, right? And they didn't feel really confident about them. And why was that? Because there was nowhere to go to affirm them. There weren't communities of people online they could talk to, right? They couldn't go at night and see somebody who they think is a journalist spout that back to them, right? Or, or go find what they see as a legitimate news outlet. That The fragmentation of media has completely changed uh, the game here where, you know, you know, if you watch a Tucker Carlson or you watch a Rachel Maddow, right? Like they, they make you feel like they're letting you in on some secret knowledge. They seem like they're credentialed. Right. And so uh, you just didn't have that opportunity in the 90s. You really didn't. Right. And, and you know, and even, you know, even these people on uh, with YouTube channels and stuff, I mean, they wear suits, they have a set, you know, 
and they look like regular news people and they look like they're offering legit news. And, and so, you know, in that, from that side, a Tucker Carlson sort of seems normal compared to how radical it is when you really start heading down those alternative sources. And like I say, I mean, they look, you get people like the, what is it? The 2000 mules thing, right. Or whatnot. And, and look at that and see it as, um, you know, legitimate documentary. Right. And, and because it's, it's well polished and it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it looks professional and things like that. So it, they think, well, it must be sort of a legitimate documentary and, and it's very hard to combat that. And yeah. And, and on the backfire effect, I mean, when it's once morality is kind of brought into the game, you know, you get a site like, uh, uh, you know, these fact checkers, if it's been confirmed by Snopes, for a lot of people, that means it must be not true or vice versa. If it's been, you know, they say, oh, this is debunked, then, oh, then it's true for sure, because they're just trying to hold back their part of the system that's holding back the real truth, you know, and, and it almost like validates it more if Snopes says it's false, you know, and it's just like, this is a big challenge, you know, and, and so, you know, technology solutions like fact checking, might be worse, right? Because of these effects, right? If it's like, oh, it's been fact checked. Oh, now we know it's part of the conspiracy. Yeah, that was a really kind of cross the Rubicon moment for me. You know, I you know I have friends who have been radicalized, and when people started saying, "I don't even trust Snopes," right? <laughs> I was like, oh, so like that was like my last art uh, tool in my arsenal, right? <laughs> so, right? I often tell my students, and they laugh at this. I say, you know, <clears throat> you're not going to believe this, but. Uh, <laughs> When the internet first came about, many of us thought it was going to be such this amazing democratizing force. And I'm not saying they didn't have some democratizing effects. Of course it did, right? But there was this sort of grand vision that you wouldn't be able to lie anymore, right? That uh, if everybody has access to information, then you can't pull the wool over my eyes, right? Because I can check my phone and I can see, you know, this, you know, this person is lying. Uh, how naive of us to think that, but uh, did you have that kind of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't democratizing elements, right? Like right. you can organize through the internet, you know, hashtags have become these powerful movements, videos going viral of police brutality, all that kind of stuff, right? Like all that stuff has been incredibly important, but the idea that it would like strengthen our shared reality, I think it's completely ludicrous now, but at the time we thought that was real, right? Oh, for sure. And I, and I think, uh, you know, and I think it's ended up democratizing sort of the business side of it almost more than anything else. Right. I mean, there's so much it's so much easier to start a company now. Right. Between things like Amazon Web Services and stuff like that. Or podcast or podcast. Exactly. You used to have to, exactly <laughs> to broadcast is a perfect example. Right. And you, how expensive was it? And that was a big change that happened in the 90s as well. There was a lot instead of just three networks, you know, there was all this other other media sources, uh, other technological things you could do. But, yeah, so I think it's. it's it's almost democratized that side of it where it's so much easier to do a business side. But yeah, you know, and, and I, I think of like the original people that did television, right? They were thought the same thing, right? Well, now we just don't have to worry, right? Everyone's going to be so educated. The populace is going to be great for democracy. They'll be so educated, you know, and, and this is just a wonderful thing, right? There's this great cartoon that I include whenever I can, but you got to pay to license it to publish it. So I, I don't include it very often in my stuff, but uh, I, uh, I'm sure you know this cartoon, but it's... um. It's a dog sitting in front of a computer uh, and he turns to another dog. And he says, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a million ways you can interpret that. But uh, the, the way that I interpret it is like you've said, which is that, uh, yeah, it, it really did democratize your ability to produce information and get it out there. And, um, you know, there, there's this writer for The Bulwark, uh, thebulwark.com. His name's Yevgeny Simkin. And uh, he, he has this great piece called Social Media is the Problem. And he says, uh, and, I, and I quote this whenever I can in, in all of my stuff. Uh, he says, um, you know, in the 90s, you'd, you'd, you'd be walking out of some store or something, you know, walking downtown. There'd be a guy on the sidewalk. The end is nigh. Repent. And there were so many social cues that told you this was not a person to engage in debate with, right? They, maybe they smelled, right? Or like <laughs> maybe their eyes were a little askew or, or whatever, right? They were clearly having problems. There was some, somebody who needed help, right? And it, it was very obvious, right? Within within two seconds. Well, and when everyone's in Times New Roman font, 12-point font on the internet, right? And, every, and everybody looks like they carry the same weight. Um, that, that really has let the genie out of the bottle in terms of, you know, um, like you said, people with with all the expertise in the world, people with zero expertise, people who follow all of the rules of journalism, people who follow none of them, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and it's it's cheap to produce, you know, 
this uh, sensational content, right? And it's, and especially if you don't fact check and you don't do any of the things that real journalism requires, it's way cheaper, right? So you could, for every sort of real story that did investigation and fact check things and got sources and did, did all the stuff that journalism does, there's like 10 that can just blast out some nonsense, right? And just, ah, that's fake. I just hear it's fake. And then just make up some stuff. You know, we had a, we had a local election here and it's for like a tiny town school board. And there was like a scandal because somebody in in support of one candidate, and we don't know yet if the candidate had anything to do with this, but in support of one candidate created this entire um, attack website about the other candidate that was absolutely 100% lies, just made up stuff. There was nothing about it that was true. This website appeared, it was promoted, it had all this fake stuff on it, and it disappeared when the election was over. And you're like, this is a little tiny school board seat, you know, and they were, and, and it's so easy, like I said, to create just totally fake stuff. And it takes way more work to go fact check all those lies than it just, just like, oh, that sounds about right. <laughs> and you just take it, right? Well, it's not, you know, it's not always so obvious, right? So, um, you know, some of the stuff is obvious, right? Like if you go to a website and it's like, it looks like it's GeoCities 1991, you know, or whatever, it's like, okay, that, that's obvious. But, you know, there are some less obvious things. So, for instance, you said it's cheap to produce things when you don't have to have fact checkers. Well, and I go over this extensively with my students. I say, you know, let's say I produce a story for a paper with anonymous sourcing. Um, guess who knows a lot about those sources? My editor. Right. And even if they don't know the names, right, they may know the names. I may tell them, but even if they don't know them, we've had a long conversation. They've vetted that. Right. And they've vetted the the, the facts in my story. Right. I, I do wonder with the fragmentation of media, like all these newsletters, for instance. Right. So I, I do wonder, like, there's all these these journalists that are leaving papers and going and starting their own sub stacks and that kind of stuff. And it's awesome. Uh, but it's also worrying because there isn't there aren't those extra guardrails and quality controls that you just alluded to. Right. And, and a lot of people don't really think about that. Like, you know, like, like the news literacy uh, uh, page that you have about, you know, sort of more trusted sources and less trusted sources. You know, most people don't sort of think about that and, 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 and worry about what brand was on it. Like it has the content I want. I like it. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a big challenge and, and it is relatively easy to even make something that looks quite polished. Right. I mean, and, and, and I will say there's, there's some bad actors that obviously are funded and stuff. So you just kind of wonder about that, but it doesn't, take that much um, resources to put together a nice looking website anymore. You can buy templates and whip that up and hire an intern, a high school intern and stuff like that. And you can make a pretty nice uh, professional looking thing that looks like news, um, you know, without, without that many resources. So yeah, it is very challenging and, you know, back checking, like, like they'll maybe sometimes list fake sources, the whole thing and, you know, back checking every one of those. I mean, is there really a guy named, you know, you know, George in town that said that, you know, that's very hard to, 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 to fact check. All right, Dave. So I often have this debate with, especially with my academic friends who study this stuff. And, and uh, it, it comes down to this question of, do the people, do the purveyors of this stuff, do they believe it? Or, uh, you know, are they just using it for effect? Are they just using it to, to gain power and that kind of stuff? And I, th I think there's, uh, there's probably a, a lot of, there's probably a lot of variety there, right? Some people are true believers and some people are really just uh, spouting stuff. But uh I was struck when I read, so there was some some uh, text messages from Talking Points memo that they released from Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff in the White House uh, to the Trump administration. And th they were in the aftermath and in, in the, the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election preceding the insurrection and, and, and after the aftermath as well. And I was, sh there's a lot of shocking stuff in there. And th these are Republican House members who are texting Meadows. There's a lot of shocking stuff in there about overturning elections and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that struck me was that these people, this, this is off the record. They do not think that they're talking to the public. I think they're talking to Mark Meadows, right? Right. And they're, they're very clearly victims of misinformation and disinformation. One of the people backs up their claim. One of the representatives, this is a house member, backs up his claim by saying, I'm seeing this report on Newsmax. I mean, that was just, just floored me. The levels to the, 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 the people who I thought were sort of just doing this. I mean, there's no, it's, it's, it was a sort of a nihilism or, or sort of just sort of a, a power grab opportunistically like, hey, if it works, it works, right? But, but it, I don't know which one's worse, true believers or those who are using it for power, but there are a lot of true believers. It's not just this opportunistic kind of thing. 
Right. It, it, it is scary. There was another one who backed up their claim with like a YouTube video that was produced yeah. <laughs> by Romania, you know, and had all kind of crazy <laughs> stuff in it. And you're like, seriously, you're, you're a freaking U.S. congressperson. And this you have is, access to more information right, than any of us. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. You have all. And, and, and then it, does that get back to that Snopes thing that like if they get an intelligence briefing, they think that's fake because it's deep state or whatever. I mean, I mean, like you say, I mean, this is pretty scary. I think we've always had, you know, some wild, you know, people in Congress and, and in and in politics. Um, uh but it's it's been the exception, you know, and and like an extreme exception. It's been kind of rare, and and even they, like we were talking about before, would would often kind of hold those views. But 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 you know, kind of you know, they wouldn't say a lot of that stuff out in public. But but now it's 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 um yeah, I mean it, it's super scary. I mean if you think about if you the numbers, you know, of, uh, of the you know who believes it and who doesn't. If you you know kind of look at the the mainstream. You know, on boots on the ground, Republican uh, Americans, you know, I mean, they've actually become more supportive of January 6th now than they were, you know, a year ago. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, believe, you know, the, the some of the lies and other things. I mean, I, I think with the election, you saw there was some backlash to that and, and maybe people were a little bit over some of the extreme views but 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 still it, it, it it's wild to me and, and if you if you start doing those numbers it, it's like there's 20 or 30 million people probably that are pretty far down that rabbit hole and and uh yeah and now you have uh, what some hundred or, or so maybe maybe 250 in congress that appear to be like you say maybe really radicalized or or as you say victims of this um and now they're going to be in kind of leadership positions potentially chairing committees and things like that but yeah exactly these people have access to real information way more than than we do and yet they still have can buy into these things and 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 would rather have a YouTube video or as you say like a Newsmax article than the actual facts that are out there. And yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that either. I mean, you know, for me personally, I'm more bothered by the people that know it's BS, like the sort of the Ted Cruz's of the world that then you know just kind of use it and and weaponize it. And, and I'm you know I, there. Are, you know, I think these things do go in cycles. And so, you know, you, we talked before about, you know, some of the other kind of things that have been out there, defund the police and stuff. And and some of the other, and so this isn't completely on the right. But but I think the cycle right now is is there is a bit more of it on the right. And these things go in cycles. And some other time you probably could have found the same thing more on the left. But, you know, and again, I, I think some of these purveyors of this content, they just want chaos. And so if, if this can be in and have a place at the table in the way that it does, that you think it's okay to to have that conversation, as you say, this is not, you know, they're not grandstanding to the media. They're trying to convince their own, um, you know, their their own side, these things through through these paths. You know, I have a hard time with where, where you go with that. Like, like you say, what, how do, how do we undo that? Um, I, I don't have a great answer for it. Um, yeah. So, uh, you, you raise an important point, which is, um, you know, with demographic changes, with uh, the way that the Republican Party has, um, you know, been trying to win elections and, and fear, are fearful of becoming a minority party, right? Like, like there are more purveyors of it on the right right now, but the the, the fundamental mechanism of motivated reasoning uh, is something that's hardwired into all of our brains. All of us want to uh, belong to tribes of people. We want to feel good about ourselves and the groups we belong to. We want to look for information which confirms that, avoid information which doesn't, interpret information in a positive manner, all that kind of stuff. We all have that hardwired. And uh, two, uh, just two examples I have. I used to teach a deviance class at a previous university. I don't teach it anymore, but I used to teach a deviance class. And, you know, I had a bunch of very leftist students who would take the class because we talk about marijuana and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and on all the stuff that like aligned with their with their views, they're nodding along, right? And then when I would get to marijuana and I would say something critical of like, hey, there is evidence that suggests putting the smoke into your lungs does have some adverse you know, health effects. Then the students were outraged, right? Like, and they like, what research is that? You know, all of a sudden they're questioning the, their PhD who's teaching them this stuff, right? Um, a, a colleague of mine, Lee McIntyre, wrote this book, Post-Truth, and he talks about going around the country and talking to flat earthers and, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and people are nodding along because it's mostly liberals in the audience. Like, yeah, those people are crazy, right? Yeah. 
And then he says, and then that, you know, and then there's these people who won't eat GMOs because they think it's going to kill them. And they're like, well, that, that part's true. And he's like, <laughs> right. wait a minute. It's the same shoddy evidence, right? So we're all guilty of this. We're all hardwired to want to look for stuff that makes us feel good and avoid stuff that doesn't, right? Um, but right now we're trapped in this moment where there's a party that is fearful of becoming a minority party, right? Um, it's, it's voters don't like the way that our culture has changed and our country has changed, you know, a variety of things have happened that they're the ones that are getting the messaging, but, but we're all, we all could be, uh, victims of this and, and could fall victim to it. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you talk to the cult experts, you know, um, it's like we thought, oh, they're dumb. They fell into it. Oh, no. <laughs> it's smart people, really smart, really smart people can do it too. In fact, you know, the one scary thing is sometimes we find really smart people are actually better at it because, you know, a lot of it is creating these narratives in your head, right? Well, they're really smart. So they can create really complex narratives that sound super convincing, you know, to their smart brain and and they get even deeper entrenched in, in these kind of things. So, so yeah, I mean, I didn't really want to throw the cult word out there, but you do see the, these types of behaviors we're talking about are the types of things that, that um, cults use to indoctrinate people. So, whether it's ultimately a cult or not, it's some of the same psychological um, patterns being used and some of the same psychological effects. And, and it's easy to discount that they're dumb and it wouldn't happen to me. But, yeah, it absolutely can happen to any of us. It is happening to all of us, you know, to some, one degree or another. Yeah, well, and one of the reasons that I like spending so much time in class, among the many reasons, I mean, the fact that our democracy is under threat and there's diseases popping their head up again that, you know, we thought we had eradicated. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why I do it. But one of the reasons why I do it is because I often hear the same refrain from the right and the left, which is because there's so much partisan media. I mean, you're saying with a fire hose of misinformation and disinformation every single day because there's so much of it uh, and, and more of it probably than we've ever had access to. Uh, the, the perception is that, oh, well, all media is bad. You sort of throw up your hands in a defeatist way, right? And that's, look, there's, there's, we have easier access to more bad information than ever before. We also have easier access to good information than ever before. But I'm fearful that both the left and the right are becoming defeatist in the face of the fire hose. There's this quote, I'm sure you've heard it before, um, from Hannah Arendt. She writes, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exist, end quote. That's where I, I'm fearful that it's like this idea that like no institutions can be trusted. No media can be trusted. Everything's partisan, right? Like everything has an agenda. That, that's a scary place to be. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that's kind of currently on my like outrage, you know, thing that is easy to get spin me out. It is that, you know, when people sort of say, well, we'll just never know, you know, I mean, it's right, just yeah. so, I mean, you know, and otherwise smart people are like, no, 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 you can know, <laughs> you can know, we this can, is knowable, we can know. this is knowable, or at least there's a, you know, that you could get, you know, some lean towards more truth than less truth kind of thing on this. There is data, there is information. So yeah, that's, that's one of the scariest thing for me. Well, we'll, we'll just never know. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm hearing that from, from people on the left and the right. And yeah, that's just, to me, that's just so scary. I was like, no, 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 no. You need to stop thinking like that. We can know. Just, yeah, because that's absolutely, and, and I think there are definitely bad actors that that's their main goal, right? I mean, they do want us to just think, you know, because that's great for the the disinformation players because now their stuff is just as valid as anybody else um, because no nobody can be trusted here. Um, you know, and and I think that some of this behavior you saw is is kind of echoed in the you, you kind of hear that between the lines in uh, some of those text messages we were talking about those Mark Meadows te text yeah. messages where they were those people had sort of fallen into that mode where you know there's there's you know well we'll just never know. And that's, that's, yeah, I, I'm actually, yeah, that, that's one of my outrage things right now is that people that say that, cause like people that, that say that, that, like I say, I know are pretty smart and whether they lean left or lean right, you know, like, oh wait, you're smart enough to know, not to think that you can't go down that rabbit hole. Don't go there. You know, don't, don't go to the, that there is no way to know the truth because there is a way to know the truth. All right. So let's wrap up by talking about, um, what do we do about all this stuff? Right. So, um, you know, we can talk on the individual level in terms of how to talk to people who've been radicalized or at the at the macro level in terms of how do we change the media ecosystem. But I, I have to tell you, I'm at a loss. You know, I've, I've done a number of episodes on the problem. I've written about the problem. Um, I'm at a loss for what to do. Um, 
Uh, so you tell me your, your big ideas for bringing the temperature down, uh, for, for breaking through this, this, uh, toxic ecosystem macro or micro you tell us. Right. So yeah. And there's a couple of different sort of, uh, you know, approaches and where, where we're going to come from and where, where, where you can do it. So, so on the individual level, you know, I think that we can start again, it kind of comes back to that be introspective and be uh, try to be critical of, of your own side. And, and I think a big, um, and, and so that's, you know, sometimes it's kind of cliche, but there, there's, you know, there are things that neuroscience says we can do, you know, slow down our breathing, things like this. And, and I will have some more episodes with some of those kinds of things, but, and, and that can help just kind of de-stress a little bit and not quite be as reactive. Um, and, and also um, not, not, I, th- I think a big thing is, trying to humanize our adversaries is one one thing that can help and and i'll get back to kind of what you were talking about about changing people's minds in a moment but but you know i think it's important if we're going to have these conversations that 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 we have to be able to humanize our adversaries and i think you know i had one person on who was like a, a professional mediator and she said you know quote stop and ask yourself one question would this person pull my kid out of a burning car and and i i love that because that does make you step back for a second and say you know if they're if if at least we can start somewhere if you think this person would at least pull your kid out of a burning car then maybe they aren't as evil and you know they aren't as bad as as all the media has told us they are um so that that that's something i think that can those kind of things can help i think you can do some things like try to think of three nice things you can think of, if you were going to come up with three nice can you come up with three you know positive things to say about that person and you know in the neuroscience there is you know, even if you don't come up with three, which hopefully you can, most of the time I think you can. But even if you don't, the actually even the process of trying to come up with three will help you to uh, help you humanize that person a bit and feel have more empathy for them. Um, you know, and in terms of you know, I, I, I mentioned that one of the main things people talk about ask me about is kind of lowering the temperature. There is that part because of course that's what we're trying to do. And and I don't know the answers yet. I'm still bringing on a lot of people. I've already talked to several, and I think at some point I will probably do some kind of a, a collection of a lot of these and kind of put it in one place. But um, the other thing that gets asked all the time is, but these guys are wrong. How do I change their mind so they you know how do I get them to how do I fix the way they look at the world so that they'll you know get it the right way, you know, get, see it, see, see the world the correct way. And, you know, to some extent, that's not what this podcast is about, but it's kind of what listeners want. Um, so I am bringing on uh, somebody uh, has a great book on this, David McCraney, who's been working on this for like a decade. Um, and he, and he kind of compiled all this research that he's done over those years. And it, the book is called How Minds Change. And uh, it's a great book, and I'm going to have him on the show uh, pro- probably sometime in 2023. But um, uh, you know, and so this book is is again probably the 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 one I would turn anybody to to if you want to see some just specific is a, a lot about how minds change, and then it also at the end has like if you want to do this, here's like a step by step guide of how you do it. And um, you know, and and the big thing about that is it's a lot of work. And, you know, you go into that conversation, if you go in the conversation that I'm going to get this person to think the way I want to think or stop thinking, you know, you know, the way they think now, you're going to set yourself up for failure because it it almost never works. I mean, that's the reality, right? So, even when you do all these things, it sort of is still, you know, a high percentage that doesn't work. So, you have to kind of go in with this mindset that it might not work. And you have to also go in with this mindset that if I'm going to do this, this is an investment because it's not, not easy. So, so I think that's, you know, and, and th- th- what you do there is, a, you know, there's a lot of different, I, I can't cover it all now, but, but, you know, a big piece of it is really getting them to explain why they think the way they, they think. And ultimately the way minds change is not that, you know, someone else doesn't change your mind, you change your own mind. So it's, it's a way to lead them to asking questions about themselves about what and get them to do that critical if you tell them to do the critical they're not going to do it right um or you give them the other information that you did the research they're not going to take that either they have to be the ones that start questioning themselves and that's the only way that those minds change and not everybody is receptive for that ever to happen but you know if you have good intentions and 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 you and you want to take that somewhere that, that that he does have some very uh, specific a uh, very specific way to walk through this like a set of 
of thinking about it. And if, if you, if it seems like you're making headway at step one, you can try to go to step two, you know, and go through it all. So, uh, again, that's kind of not this podcast. I, I kind of don't take generally, I don't take positions on issues. Generally, I don't try to change anybody's mind, uh, about issues. Uh, as I said, I'm mostly trying to change people's mind about being introspective and, and maybe, uh, you know, learn some tactics for, for de-stressing. Um, but change their mind about the outrage industry and about outrage porn, not so much about their specific issues. But yeah, in terms of, of terms of that, I would say the How Minds Change book um, is a great place to go check that out by David McCraney because he's put together, like I say, a decade of research on this. And again, the big thing is, though, it's not easy. Like if you look at this book and go, well, I'm not even going to try. It's too much work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had um, Kimberly Whaley on. She's a law professor at University of Baltimore. And <clears throat> I was talking about, you know, um, the fairness doctor and I was talking about regulating media companies. I mean, there was a bunch of things I, I, I asked her about and she said, yeah, you can do all those things if you want to. Congress can pass laws, right? So the question is, will Congress pass the law? Will uh, it, it have a constitutional challenge, right? <laughs> Go to the Supreme Court, right? Like, uh, but Congress can do these things. The question is just, could you get Congress to do them, right? And would they withstand some sort of legal challenge? So, um, you know, I, I can see an optimistic future for us here. Uh, you know, you mentioned people are bothered by polarization and that kind of stuff. I can also see a future where we're headed for the Irish troubles, where um, we are becoming very tribal and that's just going to kind of crystallize and it's going to take a, a period of 10, 15, maybe a whole generation uh, for us to just sort of get past this. Um, but, you know, I'll be hopeful. I'll try to be hopeful like you. <laughs> Well, no, and I, yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I, I think that's one area that also gives me hope is the, you know, you know, that you're, in a, you know, what you're doing is a big piece of this, right? I mean, I think this, it is, you know, it is going to probably be generational, right? I mean, it is going to, it's not going to change in a year or two, right? We are probably headed for, a, you know, a period of this uh, just continuing and probably getting worse before it gets better. But I am also encouraged by the young people I talk to. You know, I think the young people have, the next generation and the generation behind that, you know, I think I'm hopeful there that, that, you know, and maybe some of us my age and so maybe we're a lost cause, but at some point maybe our influence will be, be reduced. And, and so I, I have help, hope there as well that I, I am seeing, um, you know, this younger generation, the younger generation seem to want to kind of carry this forward and, and maybe try to undo some of this. It, it's going to be challenging because doing anything at scale is what's going to be hard. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that, 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 the fact that a lot of this is becoming more and more mainstream, the fact that we have, you know, I mean, by many estimates, some 20 or 30 million people that are pretty far down the ra radicalized uh, path, um, that's going to be pretty hard to, to, to move forward and, or to, you know, how, to, how do you resolve that? How, how do we undo that? Because, I mean, in, uh, you know, undoing one person is a challenge, right? So, do, to do this at scale is hard. And I, I guess, you know, been around a long time. And so, the, I guess the only positive I have is, Things can change in a big way. I mean, we talk about, you know, if you, if you think about something like um, littering, right? I mean, this was a long time ago. Nobody around kind of remembers this. But, you know, when I was a kid, littering was kind of a normal thing. It was like mainstream. But people just thought, yeah, I'll just leave my trash here. I don't know. I don't know what they thought was going to happen with it, but they would just leave trash everywhere. And it'll um, walk away and eventually find its way to a trash can. Right. I don't know what we were thinking, <laughs> but that's kind of what we did. Like you go to a picnic and just leave your junk there, right? Like there was no trash cans. And and we changed that. Like we changed that in a major way. Uh, I, I I think um, I, I think there's been other things like that. And, you know, there's some some of that um, some some of that. I guess it's a little bit philosophical, but uh, but it's also like real real world uh, empirical stuff that you know things change when all the conditions are right, and and you could go forever thinking this thing's never going to change. I mean, um, I mean, the example one example is sort of like uh, you know there's all these people th th throwing cigarette butts out of their car window, but one day all the conditions were right and the forest caught fire, but all the other ones that were thrown out, nothing happened. So one day all the conditions are there and all these walls come tumbling down. That that's kind of my hope that that it's going to seem hopeless until it's not hopeless. Oh, no, no I think you're right. I mean, uh, I, I don't, I, I, you know, predicting the future is a fool's errand. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> I could never have predicted what would happen with the internet and social media. I mean, you know, you name all the changes that happened in my lifetime. Um, the reason why I take a pessimistic turn on that is just to, to push back against the notion that I get from a lot of people, which is America is always this continual story of progress, right? And, uh, and I try to push back on that and think like, yeah, because we're at this point in history, 
you talk to historians and they're very clear history is contingent, right? Like there's no mathematical formula where it just guarantees you're going to have this outcome if you have these inputs, right? And so, but you are right. I mean, um, I teach a social movements class and I, I talk to my students about like LGBTQ rights and, and uh, the culture in terms of tolerance and acceptance around that. I say, and I play them a clip in the 80s of Reagan's press secretary. When someone asks him, what are you going to do about the AIDS epidemic? He laughs as if it's some joke and then accuses the reporter of being gay as sort of a joke. Like, well, why are you worried about it? Right? Like, uh, what do you, and then that's like today that would be scandalous, right? Like that, that the culture has changed so much in my lifetime. So you're absolutely right. I'm not, I am not suggesting you can't have rapid social change. It, the problem is of course, we just don't know which direction it will go. Right? Well, so. and to your point about like the, this generation was all born this century and I was only seen this world, even beyond that, you know, most of us have been born in a relatively peace, peaceful time. I mean, you know, obviously there's, but you know, in terms of like world wars and democracy being at threat, you know, the, we, we, we don't know this. So we only know this concept that, well, that's never going to happen here. Um, you know, and that, that kind of thing can't happen here. And that's, that's something that does scare me a lot because democracy doesn't defend itself. The constitution doesn't defend itself. There has to be somebody that does that, you know, and then the last time, you know, we, we were saved by a few, a few people in, in key places. Otherwise, you know, that things could have been much worse, right? It wouldn't have taken much for things for a few states to flip and things to be, be much worse. So, yeah, that scares me a little bit that we are very um, passive about this and we just think it's going to take care of itself. And, 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 and I think we haven't woken up as to um, as much as we need to about how our institutions are only our institutions. If somebody defends them, they don't magically take care of everything. And I think that, that that's a concern that I have. I think there, you know, we need to become more aware of that, that it's not just magically going to always be like this. You know, that's, that's a scary way to look at the world, but we have to defend it. Uh, somebody has to defend it. And it, it takes people doing something. It doesn't just, you know, same with the law, right? You can have a law in the books, but nobody enforces it. It doesn't mean anything. And we, you know, it's like a lot of people don't realize we have a ton of laws in the books that nobody ever, like they literally don't enforce it because they don't even know how, like nothing was written about what the penalty should be. So that law just sits there. People break it all the time. Nothing happens. So, you know, exact, it takes this kind of thing. And that, that, that's, that's, that is an area where I think we need a lot more like wake up calls. And, I, and again, I don't exactly know how you do this because when things have always just been pretty good um, in my life, all these things will take care of themselves. We just don't appreciate it. And, and most of us have never been through that and, and never experienced that, that uh, threat that it's, it's hard to, um, you know, it doesn't feel real. It just, it just stays abstract. I can't remember who wrote it. I think it was uh, Jonathan Last or Charlie Sykes or somebody recently wrote, they said, <clears throat> kind of to your point, which is, um, you know, imagine if you set fire to a house and then when the firefighters show up, you throw rocks at them to try to get them to, to stop them from stopping the fire. And then eventually they fend you off and they stop the fire. And then you sit there and say, see, what were you guys so worried about? The house didn't burn down, right? Like uh, of a few guardrails, basically the courts and a few political actors kept us from going into the abyss. So like, what if Mike Pence decides, no, I'm going to go the other way. I mean, he was, he faced an incredible pressure campaign. Um, you know, what if a few judges decide, you know, they're going to interpret the law differently. Um, we really are on the precipice. And again, it, when you talk to people about this, depending upon who is winning or losing, quote unquote, at the time, really determines how they're going to perceive. So, when I talk to Republicans about the threat to democracy. It's all like, oh, that's a liberal talking point, right? Um, but by the way, same thing when you talk to Democrats, right? So, when I talk to Democrats and I say, Stacey Abrams should not be saying the things she says about stolen elections in Georgia, right? Like, uh, you know, Democrats who say this about elections or that about elections, you know, they need to cool it because you're only contributing to the problem. And what the other side will see is, oh, see, they're saying the same thing. This is all just weaponizing this kind of stuff. It's not really a threat to democracy. It's just sort of using tactics. Well, if those tactics become normalized, then all of us lose faith in democracy. And like you said, it's on the honor system. Right. I mean, it's, it's on the honor system. You have to hope that a state legislature says that, you know, it doesn't say that I'm just going to throw these votes out because of some low standard of evidence or some completely invented standard of evidence. And I'm going to send my own slate of electors. It's the honor system. There's nobody telling them they can't do that. Right. 
Like yeah. the Supreme Court's going to decide on that soon. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And it just takes, you know, somebody to not follow these norms that we've just, all, you know, like I say, it used to be what it, uh, what was the, the how were, I forget who it was. It just did one scream into a microphone. His campaign was done. Right. It's like Howard Dean. Yeah. Howard Dean. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, one thing and his, his campaign was done right nowadays. Like none of these norms matter anymore. And those norms no, used to no. used to do that. But, you know, I'll tell you another, you know, when I, this is sort of when I, I never hear anybody talking about it. at least i haven't seen any anybody talking about it. you talked about like the individual little things that made a difference you know some intern on the capitol in the capitol grabbed those boxes of uh, you know the certified votes that there was no procedure for that because again you know we didn't have this this couldn't happen here we don't need a procedure for what to do if somebody storms the capitol and what he, so some intern you know, or some some staffer, I should say, grab those boxes just like as an afterthought. Well, maybe I better grab these boxes of of the certified votes. What if that didn't happen, right? They, you'd have had those people wandering around with the certified votes. Then what would have happened, right? That would be more, you know, potentially throwing things in chaos. So you talk about, you know, how close we were, um, you know, something like that, right? Some staffer happened to grab those boxes. There was no standard procedure. No, it was wasn't like the Capitol Police grabbed them or something. And, and it, it, you know, and and the fact that now we could, we got that close, and and now we're still like acting. I mean, there's half the country that's still like acting like, hey, it wasn't that big of a deal, or even to some degree, even the the the, the whole country to a degree is acting like it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, that that's um, <laughs> that's a challenge. I don't know what we do about that because we have to become we have to become more active and and saying that that's not acceptable, folks. Well. Uh, all I can tell you is uh, on this show, occasionally we, we, we talk about these topics. Uh, we talk about a lot of topics on this show, but uh, on Dave's show, Outrage Overload, um, they talk very specifically about this topic much more often. And both of us are going to continue to look for answers about how to, to drive us out of this ditch, um, this really poisonous um, you know, media ecosystem that we're in right now. But uh We'll put a pin in this for now. So uh, for now, we'll say, Dave, it's been a wonderful privilege to talk to you. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope everybody goes and listens to Outrage Overload. You can find them on the internet, Apple, Spotify. We have a link on Connor's forum. Um, just go listen. Great new podcast. David, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>